Welcome to a very special episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Today, I am honored, humbled, and extremely excited because today we have the king himself, Roger Corman, on the podcast. Now, I'm still in disbelief that I was ever able to even have this conversation because Mr. Corman is a man who needs no introduction. Dubbed as the king of the bees by many, He's produced over 100 movies in the horror and exploitation genres and is still working to this day at the age of 93. Roger Corman not only produced an extensive and fundamental body of work, but he birthed some of the most notable names in Hollywood. James Cameron, Gail Ann Hurd, Martin Scorsese, Jack Nicholson, Francis Ford Coppola, Robert De Niro, Ron Howard, Joe Dante, and Jonathan Demme are a few of the many people who graduated from the Corman School of Production and went on to be some of the brightest names in Hollywood. This was no accident, as being mentored by Roger Corman was a fast track to success. The unprecedented amounts of responsibility and autonomy that he gave to his directors and crew members was a magic combination that empowered and educated many of Hollywood's biggest success stories. He demanded a lot from his people, but because of that, they learned more than they ever would have anywhere else while still being able to develop their individual artistic voices. We discussed why working for his company was able to skyrocket so many huge careers in Hollywood, and we also got into Mr. Corman's leadership strategies for keeping morale high during the harsh conditions that are common with low-budget and indie filmmaking, and we hear his keys for making effective horror movies. All of this and so much more on today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Now, without further ado, I couldn't be more excited to present the legendary Roger Corman. I mean, it's a renegade filmmaker yourself. How do you feel about the overall indie filmmaking landscape? I mean, I feel like in terms of companies that were inspired by the model that you had essentially established, Blumhouse is a name that comes to mind. But I'd be curious as to yeah. your take on indie filmmaking today and how is that different from when you were making films in the beginning? And do you think it's easier for filmmakers now or is it more difficult? Well, you mentioned Blumhouse, Jason Blum. I was going to mention him myself. I think he's doing some of the best work today because he... Uh, is not totally dependent upon the horror. You should not be. He's interested in telling uh, a compelling narrative, sometimes, which is an added bonus, sometimes with some social comment within it. So the pictures he's making, I think, are more complex and are deeper than a number of the others. Uh, if there another difference between yesterday and today is uh, in relationship to production and distribution. Hmm. Production is really much easier today. You're working with digital cameras, light, uh, lightweight lighting and grip equipment and so forth, whereas before we were working with the, the big BNC Mitchell cameras and lights, some of which I remember there was a huge light called the Brute. It took two men to move it around. Now you've got all this lightweight equipment. You can shoot on location more easily uh, than we could. So the production 
I think, is easier. Any picture that had reasonable commercial quality got a full theatrical release. Today, that's an exception. Only a few horror films or other medium, low-budget, independent films get a theatrical release. The major studios with their 100 and 200 million dollar pictures dominate to such an extent that it's very difficult uh, from a distribution standpoint for a horror filmmaker or any other filmmaker to get a full release. Right. Right. And I feel like that's a positive thing in, in a lot of ways, but because things like video on demand and even channels like YouTube allow filmmakers to be seen way more than they ever would have. But I think that the negative element of that is less people are going to the movies. And the really heartbreaking element of that is that horror is, I think, best as a shared experience. I think it's best when people are in a movie theater watching a horror movie together, screaming together and laughing together. And it feels like we're starting to lose that, which is very unfortunate. I think that's true. Uh, horror, you mentioned scream and laugh. Uh, I think horror films and horror films sometimes with comedy, of which I've done a few, such as uh, Little Shop of Horrors and others, uh, work best in a theater because everybody else is joining in and it becomes a shared experience. And uh, I think you lose that uh, with what's happening today. On the other hand, with streaming, even though you don't get a theatrical distribution, you are getting a very large audience. Yeah. So one thing I would really love to dive into is, um, obviously, you've spoken at length about the overall Corman School. And th under you, you essentially birthed a who's who of some of the most important actors, directors, and producers in, in the history of cinema. People like James Cameron, Gail Ann Hurd, Marty Scorsese, Jack Nicholson, Coppola, Robert De Niro, Ron Howard. Um, in your book, you'd stated that a, a Corman credit in the minors was a fast path to the majors. And there's obviously so many elements of that. And it seems like in a lot of cases, you gave people tremendous amounts of responsibility and ownership, which allowed them to force themselves to learn things really, really rapidly. So that sense of empowerment seemed to serve all of these people. But you also gave people a lot of creative control, which seemed to really solidify their own sensibility as directors. I mean, there's so many theories as to how the Corman School was able to to graduate so many incredible forces in Hollywood today. But what do you think were some of the, the key elements of working for you that enabled some of these great names later down the line. What did you give these people? Well, first I would say uh, I gave them something, but it was their innate talent. For instance, uh, a loose comparison would be a college football coach who wins all the time. But then you look back and you find out he picked the best or got the best high school players to play on his team. So essentially, I was working with people who I thought had the innate talent themselves. I believe every one of them would have achieved eventually the same success if they'd never met me. All I did was give them a chance and give them a little bit of advice 
and a little bit of encouragement, particularly because I'd been a director myself, so that as a producer, I wanted a director to have freedom to do what he felt was right during shooting. Mm -hmm. I always put great emphasis on pre-production planning, particularly because we were making medium and low-budget films. I didn't want the director to walk onto the set and think, where am I going to put the camera? That should have been worked out in advance. So the writer's thoughts were integrated into the screenplay. I then talked about the importance of sketching your shots, to have all of your shots lined up in advance so you knew what you are doing and didn't have to think about that on the set, knowing, however, that you'll never really shoot every shot as planned. Sometimes a shot doesn't work out, or sometimes you get a better idea, but at least you have the spine, and generally you'll end up shooting maybe 80 or 90% of the picture the way you planned, and then you allow for changes during the shooting. Mm. All right, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and also in your book, I'd read, your wife would explain that on most movies, directors will get a shot, and then they'll turn to the sound guy and they'll turn to the DP and say, hey, was that okay for you? Did, did we get it? Did the sound come out okay? Whereas you never did that. You'd get the shot and then you would move on. And I think this really speaks to a very m magical momentum you were able to build on set. Can you talk about the keys to building that kind of a high-energy, fast-paced set and the, the benefits of it? I think it starts with the director himself. If he's working efficiently, the crew responds. And uh, the idea of uh, not asking if the shot was right, you go on the basis if the cameraman or the sound man doesn't say anything, the shot is right. Mm. So if something wrong, they will say it. You don't wait to ask them. You just move on unless they interrupt and say, oh, there was an airplane we've got to go again because of the sound or the cameraman says I missed the focus or something like that. So you just uh, uh, sort of teach guys to say cut, print, and then a little thank you. That was very good. And the next shot is over here. Mm. So it's all cut, print, thank you. The next shot is here. You walk to the next shot and everybody follows you and the camera goes down in that next shot. Got it. And another element of that is on independent films with low budgets, indie filmmakers typically don't have the luxury of multiple takes. And in a lot of cases, you were able to work with a lot of fantastic actors like Jack Nicholson, Dennis Hopper, Peter Lorre. Um, how were you able to get the great performances out of them so quickly? I mean, you speak to the importance of prep. What was your prep process like with your actors? Again, uh, it's in pre-production. I always like to talk with the actors in advance, primarily to work out the uh, character, uh, the, the old statement, what's my goal, uh, what's my, uh, my motivation here. All of these things are worked out in advance. So the director and the actor are on the same page, as it were, as to who and what the character is and what the character will be doing. Mm -hmm. 
having done that in advance, I try to have uh, a couple of script readings before shooting, and if there's time, as much rehearsal as time as you can get. So once more, just as with the cameraman, with the actors, most of the work has been done before you start shooting. Got it. And you had briefly studied acting, and while you studied acting, you met Jack Nicholson. Can you discuss how studying acting helped you as a director? All right. Well, first, uh, in my generation, very few uh, directors went to film school. I had a degree in engineering. I had no background in uh, directing. I started as a writer and then turned to directing. Uh, maybe because of the engineering background or just my own inclinations, I felt I learned to work with the camera, learned editing, learned all of these technical aspects very quickly. But I didn't really know that much about acting. And I felt to be a complete director, I really had to know more about acting in order to relate and work with, relate to actors and work with them. So I enrolled in a, a method acting class taught by Jeff Corey, who was probably the leading method uh, teacher in Los Angeles at that time, uh, not with the... Uh, goal of becoming an actor, but just of learning what it, how an actor thought, functioned, so that I could relate to them. I met Jack Nicholson in that class, and Bob Town uh, wrote his first scripts for me, went on to be an Academy Award screenwriter, and a number of other actors, and uh, I think it helped me to uh, very much uh, to go to that acting class. I see. And something that is very consistent throughout the course of your career is you seem to constantly intentionally challenge yourself with making a movie within a week and then three movies within two weeks and then making a movie in a single day with a little shop of horrors. It seems like in some cases you did this to become a better director or for the, the sake of the challenge itself. So what I'm curious about is with all the challenges that you would put yourself through, what do you recommend aspiring directors do to replicate some of these challenges that they themselves can put themselves through challenges that enable them to learn things at a rapid pace and, and become better directors? I mean, what what types of challenges do you recommend directors today give themselves so that they can become better? Once more, it's uh, in the pre-production planning to solve as many problems as you can before shooting, it doesn't cost you any money to sit longer at your desk figuring things out before shooting. However, and as I say, however, you have to be flexible enough to be able to change those plans when necessary on the set. Mm. Okay. And, and also I would say this, to make it clear that you are leading the set but not in some sort of egotistical, uh, I'm the dictator, this is the way it's going to go. You have to let everybody believe, and it is true, it's, it's the way films are made, that this is teamwork. We are all working together. I may be the captain of the team, but everybody is working together as a unit, as a team, to make the best possible film under the circumstances. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that brings me to another thing I was very curious about is obviously with the volume of movies that you were able to put out and the speed at which you were able to put them out, there's in a lot of cases somewhat hectic onset conditions and it's it can i'm sure in a lot of cases it was very challenging but everybody who's ever worked for you for the most part from from everything i can see still adores and idolizes you you haven't seemed to have burned any bridges so what i'm wondering is how were you able to essentially deal with people on set in ways that keep morale high during these extremely challenging conditions that come with low budget indie filmmaking particularly that come with you know, making three movies within two weeks or a movie within a single day. Um, how were you able to create that and sustain that high morale on set during these difficult conditions? It's, uh, to a large extent, a matter of respect. I respect everybody working on the set, from the, uh, from the cameraman to the stars to the extras, to respect everybody's work to treat everybody essentially as an equal um, and still be able to guide them but in a respectful and friendly way that makes a lot of sense so beverly garland had stated that um this is an exact quote what i adored about roger was that he never said it can't be done and a lot of cases throughout your career, you defied the odds and would make things happen that other people felt was impossible. So what I'm wondering is where did that, where did that, where did this attitude come from? Where did you get that? I can do anything. There's a, there's always a way where, where were you able to get that sensibility of empowerment from? Because I think there always is a way, uh, the way may, turn out to be very difficult or uh, what you plan is impossible, you settle for a lesser way. You do the best you can, but there is a solution to every problem. Sometimes uh, you have to face the fact that the solution isn't as good as you would like to be, but there's a way to do everything. Uh, uh, I, was, I can remember one time we were shooting somewhere, I've forgotten where it was, and uh, what the set, we were on location, and the location wasn't quite right. And uh, I saw, uh, I remembered as we drove to the location, there was another spot that I thought maybe might be better. And I thought, let's move to that uh, location. And uh, somebody in the crew said, do we have a permit for that location? And the production manager said just what I was thinking. The production manager said, fuck the permit. Let's go and shoot. And uh, <laughs> did. And that production manager became my regular production manager for making that statement. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. No, that's a great attitude. Um, did you ever interface with Larry Cohen? Because he had a very similar attitude. I know Larry, knew Larry. Uh, he did. And uh, he was able to pull off uh, some incredible things. I remember he had something he shot, I think, on the top of the Chrysler building, right. which was extraordinarily difficult. Uh, and he pulled it off uh, because he did plan. He had the thing worked on in advance. And it was something you would not have expected on a, on a low-budget film because he had the feeling, I can do this. Yeah. A few last 
uh, relatively like rapid fire questions. So as a horror director, uh, what scares you? I think horror to a certain extent is the recreation of childhood or even baby fears. The little kid knows there are monsters under the bed. They are there. As he grows a little bit older, he realizes there were no monsters under the bed. But buried somewhere in his unconscious still is that fear. And I think the task of the horror filmmaker or writer or anybody working in a horror medium is to break through the conscious mind, which protects the unconscious, and hit that childhood fear, recreate it, and hopefully help, uh, I don't want to say that we're all psychiatrists here, but maybe help you to clear that fear. That's a slightly uh, self-serving statement. (laughs) No, it makes a lot of sense, though. Um, So if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give to your 30-year-old self? I would say this, that to remember when you're striving for a horror effect, it isn't entirely the effect. It is the build-up to the effect, the building of a sense of foreboding, the sense that something may happen that is dangerous, and you're telling the person, get out of there and get away right away because that's too dangerous. You're also saying you've got to go forward, you've got to face that danger, and you build that iconography within the mind, and you build the sense of suspense and about to occur horror, and if you've done that correctly, the moment of horror is more frightening. Yeah, I remember in the book you had likened making a horror movie or directing a horror movie to a sexual act and how it's got to start it's got to start slow and build its way up and then eventually it builds to a to a climax so approaching approaching horror as if it were love making i think that that's very memorable it's actually you i've thought of it in three ways in horror in sex and in humor in all three you build to the moment and then it explodes in the moment. And if you built correctly, the moment uh, is more intense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, last few questions. So I remember reading that with um, with your over. You did a lot of shooting overseas, obviously, and you never booked a shoot without consulting a pilot's handbook for weather patterns. And you'd said that this this handbook had saved you many times. Are there any other tips or resources that really came in handy that are as, as simple as this notebook that other other directors should consider having in their toolkit? I think. One of the main things is not to try to fake a big-budget picture on a low budget. It always ends up as a compromised film. I think the thing to do is to recognize if you've got a low budget, you tailor your script so that it doesn't call for big scenes or big crowds or big effects or something like that. You design your film to fit your budget, and then you do your best to make the best film within that budget. Wow. 
I feel like that answers my next question, which was I'm sure you're approached all the time for advice from aspiring directors. And what is the most common piece of advice that you give to people who want to direct and people who want to produce? Again, it's um, concentrate as much as you can on pre-production and also learn from other films. If you can go to a film school, that's great. If not, uh, just try and get a job, particularly on independent films where you're not uh, uh, tied up with union requirements, where they'll always hire somebody, I shouldn't say always, but almost always hire somebody for a small amount of money to get on the set and see how films are made. Do your job, but also be observing what the director is doing, what the cameraman is doing. So you're getting an education as well as you're doing your job. Okay, great. And what's the most common bad piece of advice you hear people giving to aspiring horror directors that people should, should not listen to? Uh, well, I don't know if it's exactly advice, but I can talk back to, uh, think back to uh, some directors who say, oh, well, this is a cheap picture. I'm just going to knock it off and take the money and move on. Uh, other directors, I remember Jonathan Demi on his first film. We were having some success with some women in prison pictures, and uh, uh, I gave Jonathan the assignment of directing a woman in prison picture. Now, he could have said, well, these are cheap women in prison pictures. I'm going to knock it off. Instead, I remember he said to me, I will make the best woman in prison picture you've ever seen. You've got to have that attitude. Wow. That's amazing. What, um, what are you working on next, or what are you working on now? I have uh, two projects. I'm doing a remake of my old picture, The Unborn, in Brazil, because uh, the Brazilian subsidy is unbelievably good. And I'm working on an original uh, Death Race, uh, Death, Death Game 2084. My old picture, Death Race 2000, when we remade it with Universal right. five times, and I felt that's enough for a death race, but the idea is good. How can I find something new? And I would hope that Death Game 2084 will be a new uh, take on it. Okay, great. Well, I can't wait for that. I, I, I really can't thank you enough. This is a tremendous honor. All right. Big, huge thank you to Mr. Corman for taking the time. This really was a tremendous honor, and I was so happy that I was able to bring this conversation to you today. So here are my key takeaways from this conversation with Roger Corman. Number one, there is always a way. Roger Corman is the original renegade filmmaker who blazed trails in independent cinema, and he did so entirely outside of the Hollywood establishment. Along the way, he relied on a combination of ingenuity, sheer will, and a killer work ethic, but his approach to production was guided by the idea that there is always a way to do anything. Because of this, Mr. Corman never took no for an answer and would never accept hearing that something couldn't be done. Having the mindset of anything is possible can actually drive your mind to find solutions. Since two of the most commonly heard terms in Hollywood are no and it's impossible, filmmakers need an ironclad ethic of possibility. 
Filmmaking is a game of overcoming odds, embracing challenges, and breaking the rules sometimes. If you want to break new ground, you need to believe that it's possible first. A documentary that really does a fantastic job of exploring this idea is King Cohen, the Larry Cohen documentary. He was somebody who quite often very, in some cases, dangerously uh, lived by this same ethic of anything is possible. Definitely recommend checking that out. Number two, plan, plan, plan. One of the recurring themes of Mr. Corman's advice to filmmakers is the importance of planning, not just planning out your production and shot lists, but planning for when things go wrong, planning for adverse weather, planning for any and every disaster that could possibly occur on your set. Mr. Corman insists that directors plan everything to a T, but also that they be flexible enough to abandon the plans at a moment's notice and improvise as needed. The sheer act of extensively planning every detail of your production will prime your mind for problem solving. So if something does go wrong on set, you'll be sharp enough to be able to think on your feet and find a solution. Number three, be a director, not a dictator. Throughout the course of his career, with breakneck schedules, impossible deadlines, and very grueling shoots where everybody had multiple jobs on set, Mr. Corman demanded a lot from his cast and crew, but to this day, just about everyone who's ever worked for him completely idolizes him. Mr. Corman emphasized that the key to maintaining high morale and motivating your crew through challenging productions is to treat everybody as an equal. Producing and directing requires that you be a strong leader. But there's a fine line between leader and dictator, and the latter can lower morale and demotivate your crew and ultimately harm your movie. A key element of doing this effectively is being a good collaborator, which Mr. Corman was known for. Vincent Price talked about how he would always come up and come up with ideas with the movies that they were working together, and Roger Corman always integrated all of his ideas into the movies. What this comes down to ultimately is that most creative people really want to do good work and they'll naturally work extremely hard if they feel like their efforts are purposeful and contribute to the movie. Allowing people to do their job, being open to their ideas and staying out of their way can tap a wealth of motivation from your cast and crew that can pull your movie through even the most impossible shooting scenarios. Number four, treat horror like sex. A constant analogy that Mr. Corman makes when discussing horror is to treat it like sex, which is why he stresses the importance of starting slow and consistently building tension to a climax. This is how good horror works. This is how good comedy works. And this is how good sex works. Remember this on set and in the bedroom. Number five, don't fake a high budget. Tailor your script to fit the budget that you do have. Roger Corman is called the King of the Bees for a reason. He was able to maximize production value on nearly every film he worked on, which is why his movies always made money. It's common, particularly in horror, to see movies fighting against their own budget with overblown stories, cheap sets, cheap costumes. All of this gives films a delusion of grandeur that ultimately undermines its story and causes audience to take them less seriously. Instead, Taking the opposite approach and tailoring the script and production around your budget is a major opportunity to showcase resourcefulness and your ability to tell stories, both of which are critically important, particularly for your first film. Part of doing this is structuring the production around what you have immediate access to. In the case of Roger Corman, he would frequently build a set for one movie and then write a second movie that could be shot on that exact same set and kill two birds with one stone. Number six, 
make the best out of every opportunity. Under Roger Corman, Jonathan Demme was making his directorial debut with Caged Heat. This was a women in prison movie. Despite the fact that the women in prison genre is not exactly known for its depth or respectability, Demi guaranteed Mr. Corman that he would deliver the best women in prison movie ever made. So it's common for directors to get lazy and to rest on the laurels of the blood, gore, nudity, and thrills that come with genres like horror and exploitation. A lot of these movies leave out good storytelling and character development, and this is not only how bad movies get made, but it's how careers end. Of course, there's a lot of exceptions. Anyway, but in the case of Jonathan Demme, he added unexpected layers of depth and social commentary to Cage Heat, the likes of which the women in prison genre had never seen before. As a result, Cage Heat remains one of the best-reviewed and most highly regarded women in prison movies ever made. But more importantly... His effort and ambition enabled him to prove himself in the eyes of Roger Corman, who handed him over multiple other films to direct because the level of quality and dignity that he brought to what was considered a gutter genre. Speaking of bringing dignity to gutter genres, Jonathan Demme later went on to direct Silence of the Lambs, one of the few horror movies ever to receive Academy recognition. Anyway, guys, thank you for listening. This was a tremendous honor, and uh, I highly recommend Mr. Corman's autobiography, How I Made a Hundred Movies in Hollywood and Never Lost a Dime. It's about $15 on Amazon, and it is pure, solid, golden advice for filmmakers. And it's really, really funny and very entertaining. It's overall a great read. If you dug this episode, I also recommend checking out the conversation I had with Joe Dante. Joe is a graduate of the Corman School and discusses a lot of the lessons he learned from his time working with Roger Corman. Definitely check that out as well. Anyway, guys, thank you again, as always, for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show.